Good morning. Good to see all you here. Like Mr. Bill said, we did survive the storm, storm and very fortunate to be on the west side of that storm and just got a lot of rain and it's about an hour or so that got kind of hairy out there. Uh, but for the most part, uh, just a lot of rain and some gusts. And so it was an eventful weekend. And um, gosh, we've been here, uh, my family's been here nine years now. I feel like we've been through nine hurricanes. Uh, it, at least on average about, I would say, at least one a year. Been evacuated several times. We've been evacuated for less than what we had this weekend, I know that. Um, but you know, uh, they're all kind of the same, even though they're all different. As you know, there's different scales of strength. There's wind speeds that, that d d dictate what type of category it is. And then there's only one mile per hour difference between a tropical storm and a, a category one hurricane. I mean, really, one, one mile per hour difference, right? And so at some point, I guess you have to make a division there. But they're all, this, they're all pretty much the same. And about three days out, especially two days out, really the, the meteorologists have gotten really good at, at pinpointing pretty much what's going to happen. Now, four or five days out, they're not sure. But about three days out, they were saying, hey, it's going to touch down right on the uh, uh, Charleston, Georgetown County line. And it, it pretty much did three days later. And so you kind of know uh, what you're getting when one of these storms comes, right? You, you, they have certain characteristics. There's going to be a lot of rain. There's going to be a lot of wind. And sometimes it takes longer to get through, and other times it doesn't. But, but you kind of know what you're getting because these storms have particular characteristics. They're different than, than any other type of storms that come. They have a typical characteristic that makes it a tropical system. And if you're a Christian, you too should have certain characteristics that define you. And when people see you, they know you're not just a person. You are a Christian. You are someone that claims to know Jesus Christ. And we're looking at today characteristics of a disciple from a little short passage in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Jesus, on the way to Jerusalem, says to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Father in heaven, as we worship you today, we come across this passage that you've given us. Some of Jesus' last words as he enters the road, the, the travels to Jerusalem, where he would experience his last week, his last few days. So Lord, show us today more about what these characteristics of a disciple should look like and how we know we're walking with you. Lord, I pray that uh, you speak through me today, that my words are yours, that you fill me with your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll give you today three characteristics of a disciple. Three characteristics of a disciple we see in this passage. Number one, uh, disciples practice avoidance. Avoidance. Now, no, avoidance is not always good in, in relationships and things like that. Uh, but in this context, it is, as we're going to see. Disciples practice avoidance. 
Verse 1 tells us that his disciples, says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Y'all have that on your, uh, your uh, uh, refrigerators at home? <laughs> not something we like to claim, not a promise we like to claim, right? Uh, one of the things we must realize as Christians is just because you're saved, just because you have the Holy Spirit working through you, just because you're being made daily new in the image of Christ, this doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. Many of us probably realize that. Why not? Because you will continually be tempted. You will continue to be tempted this life. In fact, Jesus says you can count on it. <laughs> not a promise of Christ we like to claim. He says you can count on it. He says they're sure to come. Just as that tropical system was sure to come, he says temptations are going to come. Temptations to sin will come. So what do we do? Well, we have to avoid them, right? We have to evacuate in some, in some manner of speaking. We need to avoid them. Now, the word for temptation here in the Greek has the idea of a fishing lure. And so you know when a fish bites a lure, it, it thinks it's biting something tasty. It's bait. What it doesn't realize, most fish at least, is that a hook is inside the bait, which is why it's bait. And that's what temptation is. Temptation says, whoa, look at this. This is wonderful. You want this. And, oh, that's great. And, and, it, might be, and it might be tasty because I'm sure the bait is tasty, but the hook still hurts. And that's the thing about sin. It promises good which is tempting, and the good is often good, but the consequences are painful. Gossip feels good. There's some satisfaction in talking about people sometimes, or people wouldn't do it if it didn't. Slander feels good. Gluttony feels good. Sexual immorality often feels good. Most sin feels good, but they all have a hook that is piercing and destructive because sin is not of God. See, sin is a distortion of the good things God's given us. That's what it is. It perverts what God's given us. That's why sin is tempting, because there's some idea of goodness in it. James gives us further instruction on temptation. He says this in verse 13 of chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God is not putting this temptation in your way. He, he's not trying to see if you will sin. That's not how he works. Now, he tests us, but he doesn't tempt us. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured, there's that word again, and enticed by his own desire. The Bible says our own desires are what tempt us. Verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this passage gives us several truths about temptation. First, that God doesn't bring it. We can't blame God for the temptation. Second, it says that our desires make us prone to the temptation. 
Whatever that desire is that we have, it makes us prone to it. And then he uses this birth language, metaphorical language, and he says that acting on our desire then gives birth to sin. So it's growing, but then acting on it, uh, it breaks the womb, gives birth to sin, and then when sin grows up, it brings death. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray this, Matthew 6, 13. What's he tell us? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen? That's, that's a real prayer. We don't typically recite the Lord's Prayer every week. When I was at my friend's funeral a few weeks ago, they recited it, and everybody knew it by heart without looking down, as most of the people have heard it. But there's real wisdom, real truth in the Lord's Prayer, which is why he told us this is how you pray. When you pray, you need to be praying this. Lord, save me from temptation. Help me with my temptation. Deliver me from this. But when it comes to temptation, there's some good news. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now this should be on your, uh, on your refrigerators at home or your mugs. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Isn't that great? There's nothing you're going through that someone else isn't going through now being tempted in some way or has not been tempted in some way. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You can say all day long, the devil made me do it. I'm just not strong enough. The Bible says you are strong enough. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability that he's given you. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He, he's opened up all four lanes of the interstate. He's given you an evacuation route. When that storm comes, there is a way out. But sometimes we like to hunker down and ride out the Category 5 storm as if nothing's going to happen to us. As if the trees aren't going to be knocked down, as if we're not going to lose power. We think, well, what happened? Well, a hurricane came and you didn't leave. That's what happened. A destructive one. And the evacuation routes were wide open. We often forget that God gives us a way out so that we can endure it. That's the promise that temptation will come. We should pray that God leads us away from it. And when we find ourselves tempted, there is an escape. So we need to practice as disciples avoidance when those things come. So that's the first thing he tells us. Secondly, disciples practice holiness. When we avoid, we can be holy. When we fall victim to our temptations, it's hard to be holy. Disciples practice holiness. Now, he moves from talking about avoiding temptation here in the second half of verse 1 to shifting gears to talking about the ones who provide the temptation. See, it's just you don't get tempted by inanimate objects. Many times it's people that provide the temptation. They text you, call you up on the phone. Well, did you hear about what happened to so-and-so? Or something else more devious or sinful happens. More type temptation comes in your life and you're tempted by it. 
He says, woe to the one through whom they come. A woe is an exclamation of grief. He's saying that there will be a grief to those who bring the temptations to God's people. Jesus then gives a very explicit illustration as to the seriousness of being the the force that causes others to fall victim to their temptation and to sin. Look what he says in verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, I know every one of y'all has a millstone at the house, so I don't need to describe what it looks like, right? But just in case, I have a picture of one I want to show you. That's a millstone in the biblical times. That's what a biblical millstone would look like. It would grind the grain, and that donkey would, would, would walk around it. That beast of burden would walk around it. That millstone would, that circular object would grind the grain. Now, obviously, a rock that big, a stone that big, was very heavy. Jesus is saying, it's better for you to tie that stone around your neck. Now, my head's not that heavy, just so you know. It's big, but it's not that big, right? My neck's not that strong. Tie it around your neck and go take a swim. We know what's going to happen. You're not going to swim very long or very far at all. You're going to sink. So he's saying, it's better that you would just go ahead and take your life, is what he's saying than to cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, often, this is interpreted as being little children. And yes, little children are part of this phrase. But when he uses this phrase, little one, he's, he's actually using it in a more overarching uh, phrase, or overarching boy application. Little ones was the way of referring to disciples of Jesus, all the disciples of Jesus. John referred to his, his, Jesus' disciples as his little ones. We see Jesus doing the same thing. Children certainly are part of it. And yes, you, you uh, make a child sin, there's judgment. But really, Jesus is saying that to make any children of God sin, there's judgment here. And so be careful that you are not bringing sin into the people of God's lives. So he said, this is why he says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Watch what you're doing. Watch where you're going. Watch what you're saying. Watch what you're watching. Watch what you're writing. Watch what you're reading. What are you bringing in? Right? Pay attention to yourselves. You don't want to be that one that brings sin into another believer's life, that causes another believer to fall victim to their temptation. You don't want to be that influence. Jesus says it's better if you tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the sea than have that type of consequence judgment in your life so we need to practice holiness we don't need to be the bringers of sin that's silly we need to practice holiness holiness is the art of becoming more like jesus that's what we've been called to do look at first peter 1 14 16 peter here calls us god's people children as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Those are our temptations, our desires. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
one of the central aspects of the character of God is that he is holy. And the foundational central aspects of God is he is holy. And this means that everything he is, is good. So whatever is the opposite of God is not good. It is unholy. So therefore, whatever God is, is holy. So we too are to be called holy in our conduct. We talked about the, the doctrine of God uh, this week in our Wednesday night study of how he is similar to us. Attributes and characteristics that he has that we can have. God is wise. Because God is wise, we should be wise. That makes us holy. As God is truthful, we should be truthful in our dealings with others. That brings holiness into our lives. As God is faithful, we should be faithful to others. In our relationships with others, we should be faithful. That makes us holy. As God is good, we should be good to others. As God is loving, we should love others. As God is merciful, we should give mercy to others. As God is gracious, we should give grace to others. As God is patient, we should be long-suffering and patient with others. As God is a God of peace, we are to be peacemakers. As God is righteous, we are to be righteous. As God is just, we should seek to be just and fair in our dealings with people. This is what it means to be holy. To be like God, which we know is impossible, but we still have the power to be so. If it was, if it was completely impossible, God would never call us to do, to do it. He would never instruct us to be that way. We'll never be God, but we can be like God. Don't be a believer who tempts others to sin. God will judge fairly and rightly when we do that, so we practice holiness. And finally, number three, disciples practice forgiveness. So he's talking about avoiding temptation and then not sinning and then not being the one to sin. And then he transitions to, well, but what do you do with sin? What happens when it happens? You just, if someone sins against you, you just... Uh, Remove them from your life? No. Not necessarily. Look what he says in the second half of verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So he says, if you know a brother or sister in Christ is in sin, it is your duty to warn them. Now, it should be done in love. Now, this is kind of against our culture, our society, because this is a judging rebuke. This is, this is, hey, I care about you, rebuke. And it's countercultural because our culture tells us that what someone does is their business. It's their business. Stay out of their life. It's their business. Well, let me tell you what. <laughs> the minute you decide to be a believer... The minute you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are no longer your own business. You're not. There's no individualized Christianity. We've individualized it in our country. That's not a thing. It doesn't exist. You are, in, you are then born again, not into yourself, but into a covenant community 
of brothers and sisters in Christ who are there for you and to help you. And when you sin, to help you get out of it. That's why we're in together as a community. That's why God has called us into a church. But many times we're too prideful to ask for help. Too prideful to acknowledge our issues. He says, when it happens, rebuke lovingly. And then if he repents, don't hold it over his head. You forgive him. That's the whole goal. Reconciliation, restoration. They need to be reminded that if you have a brother or sister in sin, that the church is here for them, and we should offer to help them in any way they need. And when he repents, which is the goal of rebuke, you forgive him for that sin. Look at 2 Chronicles 39. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him, but we will turn our face away from our brothers and sisters in Christ. No, we don't. We're to be like God. We don't hold the sin over their head. We don't keep bringing it up. We forgive and we move on. But what if he continues to sin? What if he does it again? Then what do we do? Jesus speaks about this different places. And in this instance, he says, verse 4, And if he sins against you seven times in the day, that same day, this is a lot, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. And what he's saying is this, there's no limit to God's forgiveness in our life, so there should be no limit to forgiveness for the church and its people. None. Now, unrepentance is a different thing. In all these situations, he repents. An unrepentant believer, what can you do with it? The Bible says you treat them like an unbeliever because they probably are. Because repentance is a thing that God's people do. So that's a whole different topic. But a repentant believer who comes and admits, yes, I know I was wrong, we forgive. We forgive in the community. There's no limit to God's forgiveness. And so in the Christian community, there's no limit to the forgiveness that we should have for one another. Ephesians 4.32 be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, 13, that we're called to be bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's all throughout Scripture, forgiving those who've wronged you. Now, Forgiveness does not equal overlooking the consequences of sin. For instance, if you're one of our greeters at the door at church and you lose your temper and you yell at a guest, uh, you know, guess what? Uh, you're probably not going to be a greeter anymore, right? And we forgive you, and especially if you repent, but you're probably not going to be greeting, at least for a while, right? There's a consequence to it. Work out whatever's in your life. We'll help you. Whatever caused you to yell that guest, we'll help you with it, right? Now, we never had that happen. That's why I'm using it as an illustration. And Lord willing, we don't ever have it happen. Right? We'll try to help you all we can with what's going on. And when you get healthy again, you'll greet. So there's no, it's not that there's no consequences. 
but there's always forgiveness. You should be known as a person of forgiveness. Believers, the characteristics, we avoid sin. We work to be holy, which means we don't bring sin into people's lives, and we are people of forgiveness. Those are the characteristics of a Christian. How do we know we had a storm here this week? Because the damage here and then up the coast shows that a tropical system moved in to our area and did what it does. Believers, we are to be known as Christians who has this, when we live and act and talk and be about in our community that people know that they've been in the path of a believer. They've been in the path of God's people. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us today. As we close our time together today, uh, we thank you for minimalizing the damage in our area, at the same time bringing us the rain that we need, a lot of it. And we thank you for that. As we leave here today, that you would help us all work in these categories, that we would avoid that sin, the temptations we have, you would give us a way to do so, that we would work at not bringing sin into people's lives, and we would be forgiving when people sin against us. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.